Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurat West. I'm Ada Yee, a neuroscience graduate student here at Stanford. Today our guest is Indira Robin, professor of neurobiology and physiology at Northwestern University. We'll be speaking with her about antheroreceptor kinetics and auditory neurons, sodium channels and cerebellar neurons, and how Shakespeare and science maybe aren't all that different. All this and more coming up. We're here today with Indira Rahman, Professor of Neurobiology and Physiology at Northwestern University. Um, thank you so much for speaking with us today, Professor Rahman. Thanks. It's my pleasure to be here. All right. Just to get to know you a little better, um, can you tell us where you grew up and if you're interested in science as a kid? Yeah. I was born in Rochester, New York, actually. Mm -hmm. I grew up in the suburb, Henrietta. Mm -hmm. and. Um, no, actually, I wasn't particularly interested in any clearly defined discipline of science or the results of science as they were presented to me when I was a, a kid. I was I was interested in math and I was interested in languages mm -hmm. uh, because my my parents were immigrants from India and from the Caribbean, Curacao, mm -hmm. the Netherlands, Antilles, and they spoke many different languages. My father started systematically teaching me languages when I was a kid. And uh -huh. I like languages and accents and translation, and I like that there was a code um, with meaning, not just in the words, but in the way that people spoke. And, and math was like that, too. And I loved solving puzzles, word and number games, and so forth. And I think that that's really where the essence of my scientific thinking really grew from. I liked the fact that when you knew the code, you had a kind of, of, of power and ability to, to understand things. And, um, and so I wanted to study math and language in college, mm -hmm. but it was actually my father who strongly advised me to, to do some kind of a science. And so I figured that since the code that I was interested in was in the brain, maybe I could study language in the brain. How many languages are you fluent in or were fluent in? I'm not fluent in that many, yeah. but the languages, uh, the other languages I speak well are, are, are Spanish. My mother comes from a Spanish-speaking family. Mm. Um, but I also studied to some various de degrees of ability with my father, French and Italian and German and Dutch. My mother comes from the Dutch Antilles. And I tried to study some of the Indian languages, Tamil, which is my father's native language. Um, and my mother taught deaf kids, so I, um, I learned sign language when I was young. And so you did your undergraduate not too far from where you grew up, I guess, in yeah. Cornell, which is also mm -hmm. New York. Um, mm -hmm. And you're saying you were interested in language in the brain. You majored in biology, though, right? I chose Cornell because it had um, the possibility of doing a concentration in neurobiology and behavior, which was unusual at that time. And like I said, I wasn't really that interested in biology in general. It yeah. was the neuro part that really appealed to me because mm -hmm. I had this big idea that I was going to study language mm -hmm. in the brain. So I was a neurobiology and behavior concentrator, but in the field of, of biology. Mm -hmm. And I believe you did some undergraduate research. So you started to get into the lab um, and some of your early undergraduate research was done in the lab of Carl Hopkins, who studies electric fish. Um, can you tell me how you got involved in these uh, experiences and what they did to inspire you? Sure. Um, Carl Hopkins taught, well, he actually taught my undergraduate introductory biology course, but it was in my junior year that I took a course with him that was called Animal Communication. Mm -hmm. And uh, I actually got in the class by mistake, I, I, I dropped business statistics and was desperately looking for another class I could take by <laughs> animal communication. And uh, I didn't really know what that was. It sounded like dog ESP to me, but I 
needed a class, and so I, I, I took that class. And it turned out to be one of those keystones that changes yeah. one's life. So animal communication wasn't dog ESP. It was all kinds of beautiful stuff about how the the physical stimuli in the world, mechanical and light and chemical, were 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 translated, transduced into the electrical language of the brain, um, and then ultimately transformed to make the kinds of signals that animals made to one another to signal everything that they needed to signal. And uh, Carl Hopkins taught the material in the most beautiful way, and I was extremely excited to learn about sound signals and Fourier analysis. Carl Hopkins taught us Fourier analysis, complete J omega T's and everything, and he demonstrated that the cochlea worked like a Fourier analyzer. Um, I remember we read some papers by Robert Fetty Place on um, auditory transduction and tuning properties of hair cells, from, I think papers from the early 1980s, and I was sold. I finally had figured out the language I really wanted to learn. It was the language of the brain, and it was called electrophysiology. And um, Carl Hopkins then offered me a spot in his lab to study the tuning properties of electroreceptors or canolan organs of electric fish, which are like auditory hair cells. He, he knew that I was completely taken by this, this topic that he had, he had taught us. And when he offered me that position, it seemed almost incredible to me. I could not believe that a professor was actually inviting me to uh, work in his lab. I didn't fully understand what it entailed, but I said yes right away. Mm -hmm. And so in his lab, you know, we could place a surface electrode over a canolan organ of an immobilized fish and you could mm -hmm. play electrical signals to the canolan organ and then record the responses. And the first time that I saw the electrical responses of the canolan organs zooming across the oscilloscope in that beautiful phosphorescent green that I came to associate with brain language, uh -huh. I totally lost my head. Uh -huh. And I just started crying out, action potentials, action potentials. And actually, Indira, they're spike-like generator potentials. Uh -huh. And um, I was too excited to care. It was <laughs> just the, the, the most exciting thing I had ever seen. I was just crying out, it's doing it, it's doing it. So I worked for him, and I found out that real research was totally different from science labs, which mm -hmm. I had never really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. And so it was really a wonderful introduction to doing neuroscience. And I think at even some point you went to Puerto Rico to do some research. So my maternal grandmother is actually Puerto Rican, mm -hmm. uh, and my, my grandmother's sisters still lived there in, in the late 1980s and none of them had married, they were living together and they were very interesting and unusual women, one of them was a botanist she'd mm -hmm. done her PhD in the 1940s at the University of Wisconsin-Madison oh. um, <laughs> one had been a nun for 25 years but had also taught chemistry oh, wow. and one was a pediatric cardiologist uh -huh. and she had done her medical degree in the 1950s in Kansas those were the early days Yeah, yeah it's unusual, even women of that era and I wanted to visit them. And yeah. as, it, as luck would have it, my pediatric cardiologist great aunt was the acting director of the Instituto de Neurobiología, the Institute of Neurobiology. Uh -huh. And she found me a technicianship. So I lived with my great aunts uh -huh. that summer. Um, and there were, there were three of them between the ages of, I think it was 59 and 70, I don't know what it was then, mm -hmm. 78. And there were two other women who lived with them that were also one was in her 60s and the other was about 92. Mm -hmm. So I lived with these five women and mm -hmm. I learned a lot about forging one's own path in life and also yeah. a little bit of neurophysiology in Spanish. My great aunts were a, a tremendous inspiration to me yeah. that I could only sort of appreciate that at, at that time. Mm -hmm. And um, understanding what they represented and what I could learn from them was something that 
blossomed over mm-hmm. many years, even decades afterward. So you mentioned that in that very inspirational class with, with Professor Hopkins, uh, you learned about the auditory system, and that turned out to be the subject that you would go on to study in graduate school. Mm-hmm. Um, but after all these experiences undergrad, did you want to go to graduate school right away? Starting graduate school right after college was what I wanted to do. Um, I got sick in my senior year of college. Mm. I was in and out of hospitals, and I didn't really end up applying to graduate school in the normal way. Mm-hmm. I had worked as a technician as an undergraduate for Howie Howland, who was also in the Department of Neurobiology and Behavior at, um, at Cornell. And he offered me the chance to work in his lab, even though I'd sort of missed the normal mm-hmm. application procedure, and I accepted that. And his lab was actually a human vision lab, and right. I wanted to do auditory systems, but he said, don't worry, we'll work something out. <laughs> and I really owe him a lot for keeping me in the, <laughs> in the graduate school research track and for giving me a context to learn electronics and programming, which I did right. do in his lab. Even though, as it turned out, there were a lot of complications trying to do auditory work in a vision lab. Yeah. And so after a year, I transferred um, to Wisconsin. Uh-huh. And um, I was pretty focused on doing human work at that time, sort of mm-hmm. a throwback to my interest in hearing and language. Yeah. And, and so I was in the audiology department. But then by going back to that level of analysis, I realized I'd actually really caught the bug of doing cellular neuroscience and I wanted to work at a more basic level. Right. So I transferred yet again to uh-huh. the neuroscience program at Wisconsin. Right. And um, so going back to actually where one of your great aunts had been before, following a little bit in her footsteps, yeah. and joining the lab of um, uh, the then young Lawrence Trussell. Um, and he was studying clusters of auditory neurons in the brainstem, uh, known as the cochlear nuclei. Uh, I think he had just started at that time, is that right? That's right. That's right. I got there four months after he did. Why were you drawn to uh, Lawrence's lab in the first place? I mean, was there a specific... Uh, atmosphere or was it mostly scientifically motivated by your interest in the auditory system and a mechanism? Well, I had just transferred um, from the audiology department into the neuroscience training program Mm -hmm. and the program director, Mm -hmm. Lillian Tong, Mm -hmm. had suggested that I should talk with this new guy who had just arrived a few months before. She must have known that he was looking for people. Mm -hmm. And so I did. Mm-hmm. And what I remember very clearly is Larry's explanation of his research. Mm-hmm. Synaptic transmission and glutamate receptors and EPSCs and sound localization and temporal coding and adendritic cells. All these things that I heard of and knew mm-hmm. a little bit about. Mm-hmm. But he gave the most beautiful, cogent explanation of how they fit together and mm-hmm. why he was going to study them. Mm-hmm. And he was drawing on a sheet of paper and I was watching his hands making the lines on the page, all these cells and synapses and currents. And I was mesmerized because it's like poetry. I wanted to be able to think like that. And I wanted to be able to draw those hieroglyphics and explain everything that clearly. And I thought, I want to learn from this person. Mm -hmm. It was the area that I had some interest in, but Mm -hmm. I had really been focused on the periphery and transduction. And he was taking me a few synapses into the brain, Mm -hmm. um, into the realm of synaptic transmission and... I I loved the way it sounded. Mm-hmm. And then when I started my rotation and started recording voltage quantum currents from isolated cells, mm-hmm. that was then I knew I'd finally found what I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. It almost sounds like uh, teachers and good teachers, good explainers are sort of a theme a little bit in your path. <laughs> yeah, I've been very focused on finding the people that I felt I could learn from. And I actually took that very seriously. I remember at the time I thought, I'm going to entrust the development of the synapses in my brain to this person. I actually raised it like that to myself. <laughs> so I was really looking 
for the kind of, of teachers that I could learn from. Mm -hmm. Right, sure. So as part of your work there, you're using electrophysiology to look at some of the kinetic properties of amphoreceptors um, in these auditory synapses. Um, so can you tell us a little bit why the kinetic properties of these receptors are particularly interesting, um, given how hearing works um, and the time scale of hearing? Yeah, well, we didn't know when we started that the kinetic properties were going to be interesting. Yeah. Um, Donato Ortel, who is also at Wisconsin, had been at the forefront of suggesting that auditory neurons had specializations, and she focused primarily at that time on their intrinsic currents. Larry was interested in whether amperoceptor kinetics, glutamate receptors, might also be specialized. But it was a fairly new idea at the time. The amperoceptors had just been cloned, mm -hmm. and few people had actually measured their kinetic properties accurately. That was one of the things that Larry had done mm -hmm. uh, because it required this ultra-fast, precise application of solutions to cells or patches. Mm -hmm. And so that was my thesis project, trying to get these techniques working on isolated cochlear nucleus neurons mm -hmm. and to test whether there were specializations of the amperoceptor kinetics that might be well-suited for transmitting temporal components of information. And so that, that was my thesis project, and I loved doing it. I loved the speed of electrophysiology, <laughs> and it was, it was quite striking and exciting to, to discover with Larry that the amperoceptors in the neurons of the cochlear nucleus had these extraordinarily fast kinetics that would suit them for preserving the temporal aspects of auditory systems. What I remember is that there was a review paper published after our first papers came out that uh -huh. referred to the idea of specializations of amperoceptors as an optimistic view <laughs> and cited our work. And I remember using that line as the springboard for the discussion at the end of my thesis about is this actually an optimistic view or you know what is that what is the evidence for it? Right. Um, it, I mean, it's a pretty fascinating idea that, you know, among this what we think of as one type of receptor, it's so in a way secretly diverse among different types of neurons. Yeah, and that idea of functional diversity was one that I think was um, relatively new at the time. I think at that time the appreciation of the diversity of kinetics was quite new because mm -hmm. it was difficult to make the measurements of the right. kinetics. And so uh, many of the studies were more about showing that the receptors were responsive to glutamate with yeah. very slow application times because that's what was possible mm -hmm. and and fewer were actually about trying to find the details of the of the of the kinetic responses much less relate it to anything about information trends. I think one of the th reasons that the auditory system was an interesting place to look at these questions was because here we were using the native receptors instead of cloned receptors looking mm -hmm. at the native receptors in cells with an awareness of what the informational content was of mm -hmm. the signals going through these cells. And that was a fairly, I think it was a great choice of Larry as a, right. as a, as a first preparation yeah. to, to start exploring it. That's good. All right, so moving on from your graduate work, uh, for your postdoc you went to Harvard to work with Bruce Bean, um, where you started to characterize sodium channels that are responsible for the special firing properties of neurons in the cerebellum, which, um, as many in our audience will know, is kind of this area or region of the brain, very large region of the brain in the back of your brain, um, thought to be responsible for movement. Um, so first of all, this is a pretty big shift, both in terms of mechanism and brain region, from what you were doing in your graduate work. Uh, why were you interested uh, um, in the cerebellum, and why were you interested in shifting into um, what, we, what are so-called intrinsic properties of neurons? 
Well, here I have to confess that I had no interest in the cerebellum. <laughs> cerebellum. Yeah. I was interested in ion channel biophysics and kinetic diversity mm-hmm. and transduction. And so I actually explored some postdoctoral possibilities to study the retina. But what I was really interested in, and maybe we're back to the theme of teachers again, was Bruce Bean's papers, um, which I'd found as a student. And I was very attracted by the ion channel biophysics in them. And when I read the discussion sections, I had the sense that whatever had been learned in the paper was going to open up new worlds. So we're going Mm -hmm. somewhere. Mm -hmm. And um, it was interesting because he wrote about a whole bunch of different kinds of cells and ion channels. But no matter what it was, Mm -hmm. you're always left with this combined sense of discovery and possibility. And that's really what attracted me to his lab, his discussion sections. I figured, you know, this guy, he can see how it all fits together, and I wanted to learn from him. And the cerebellum, the cerebellum itself was sort of a compromise in my eyes. I've been <laughs> taught about Purkinje cells right. sort of incidentally in classes, but it was uh-huh. only about halfway through graduate school that I read a paper in which I found out that they were inhibitory. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what good is a projection neuron that's inhibitory? You know, how can it say anything? And... Um, of course, that ended up providing the foundation for the rest of my career. But so I was actually, in Bruce's lab, I was actually planning on studying the GABA receptors in Purkinje cell targets in the cerebellar nuclei to try mm-hmm. to figure out what were they hearing from mm-hmm. these inhibitory um, inputs. And studying sodium channels was completely fortuitous. I was actually troubleshooting equipment, and I used Purkinje cells, a cell isolation procedure for Purkinje cells that was well-established in the lab, and I figured I could just evoke some voltage-gated currents instead of ligand-gated currents because I hadn't set up the solution exchange apparatus yet. And since I was recording sodium currents, um, again, just as a, as a troubleshooting experiment, I was remembering uh, the Yanas paper I had read as a graduate student on persistent sodium current. I thought, hey, I'd like to see what persistent sodium current actually looks like as long as I'm recording something. But I didn't know really how to be sure that my currents had equilibrated. I knew that people use voltage ramps to evoke persistent current. I didn't know how to be sure that the currents were equilibrated, so I gave a slow ramp, and then I stepped the voltage down to a moderately negative potential just to make sure that the persistent current after the ramp was going to be the same as the current as I was ramping up during the depolarization. Mm -hmm. And uh, it seemed like a great idea, but I kept getting these terrible capacitative transients when I (laughs) repolarized the cell. And at least that's what I thought they were until it occurred to me that they were TTX sensitive. Uh And um, that's actually how I ended up uh, finding what we ended up calling the resurgent sodium current. Right, right, exactly. And that's a good segue. So I want to talk a little bit about that work. So most people, when they think of sodium currents, most uh, beginning neuroscientists know uh, that sodium channels um, activate and open uh, during depolarization, and that's what gives rise to, for example, an action potential. Um, but in this case, you were seeing that in this particular cerebellar uh, type of cerebe- cerebellar neuron, you were getting um, two additional types of current you mentioned here, persistent current and then uh, what you just called a resurgent current. Can you um, explain to us a little bit what, what, those, what that means? Sure. Um, to put it simply, the channels that are capable of making resurgent current, uh, they open and inactivate with depolarization like any classical voltage-gated sodium channel that mm-hmm. most people learn about, but then they reopen with repolarization. Mm-hmm. Right? And so that can help depolarize the membrane potentially again to make another action potential. So mm-hmm. it turns out that these channels that have the capacity to do this can help cells fire repetitively. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it turns out that practically any voltage-gated sodium channel has the capacity to make resurgent current. What it depends on is having an, another 
having another associated protein that will block the channel at positive voltages getting in the way of the classical inactivation gate mm -hmm. and then that channel blocker will be expelled and unblock the channel at negative voltages mm -hmm. and so that way um, the the channels will go into a blocked state at the top of the spike say and mm -hmm. and an unblocked state at the bottom of the of the action potential in the, after hyperpolarization and they don't really inactivate. Mm -hmm. They don't really enter inactivated states and this is something that can help the cells well, it will shorten the refractory periods mm -hmm. and help the cells fire at high rates. And what comes kind of out of this is that basically these cells have kind of unique properties compared to say a CA3 cell or a hippocampal mm -hmm. cell as mm -hmm. you've shown before. Um, are these kind of resurgent sodium currents found anywhere outside of the cerebellum? Yeah, when we first found um, the resurgent current yeah. We immediately thought, uh -huh. because it was new, that this was a quirk of Purkinje cells. It turns out, over the last 20 years, since it was identified exactly 20 years ago, actually, um, it's turned out that resurgent current is present in at least 20 different types of neurons in the brain. Mm -hmm. um, many of them are in the cerebellum, basal ganglia, brainstem, areas that have the capacity to fire action potentials rapidly, mm -hmm. um, but they're also present in, in some dorsal root ganglion cells and mm -hmm. some other neurons um, in, in cortical regions. These are often neurons that can, like you say, uh, fire action potentials rapidly, or can you, could, would you say that they're neurons that burst a lot? Or Yeah, they tend to have some mode of firing that, um, uh, that we would call rapid, so it could be a burst of action potentials, it could be prolonged, relatively mm -hmm. high frequency action potential firing in the face of, of external stimuli, or it could be spontaneous firing. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just really fascinating that from a what was basically a troubleshooting experiment here, you made an observation that led to a pretty broad yeah. set of discoveries. And also, and also coming back kind of to the theme of your graduate work, which is that there's kind of this hidden diversity, you know, and one kind of channel, a sodium channel, uh, there's actually a lot of different quirks that can be found in different types of neurons. Exactly. And that was one of the things that was very interesting and exciting about working in Bruce's lab, it was an incidental observation. I had absolutely no intention of, of studying, no plan, I should say, of studying sodium currents. But um, when, when, when I noticed it and talked it over with Bruce, we got excited and everything sort of followed in, a, in, a, in an unplanned but very exciting way. And to me, that's, again, a testament to how a lot of Wonderful science is not formulaic, not mm -hmm. not really planable. It has to do with attending to the information as it comes in and being responsive to it. And that was one thing I really appreciated working with Bruce, that he very much encouraged us, me and all the other people in the lab, to pay attention to situations arising and take advantage of them. Um, and do some good science that way. Yeah. 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 If you hadn't uh, tested the TTX sensitivity of that resurgent current, yeah. maybe you would have just thought it was an artifact. Exactly. Um, exactly. So after your postdoc, um, you know, after um, getting through some of the molecular mechanisms, including identifying some of the subunits responsible for these resurgent uh, currents, uh, you started your own lab at Northwestern. Um, and we'll talk about the work you do there in a minute. But um, you've also, on the side, managed to do a bit of op-ed writing. Um, um, including a very well-read piece on how to be a good graduate advisee. Definitely read that. Um, and more recently, a very imaginative piece that I really enjoyed in eLife um, that kind of pictures how it would be if Shakespeare had to go through grant review in order to write Hamlet. Um, this is a great read. I highly recommend it. But can you tell us what precipitated this kind of creative piece? Sure. 
Yeah, triaging Shakespeare. Um, I wrote that for myself, actually, <laughs> completely for myself in 2010, several years ago now, when I was writing my first short format NIH grant. Mm-hmm. I had actually submitted a long format grant, which didn't get funded, uh-huh. and was doing the revision in the short format, which was a challenge. And I was also facing my first set of uh, bullet-pointed critiques, mm-hmm. and um, I was I was working at home, and I was pretty irritable at the time, <laughs> and I got up and I stormed around a little bit and started thinking about, um, again, repeating a word I just used, how the more formulaic format influenced what I saw, at least in the moment, as mm-hmm. creative freedom. Mm-hmm. And uh, from that, it was a short step yeah. to imagining what it would be like for other artists artists to write within that format. Anyway, I've always self-medicated through parody, uh-huh. and so I just started pounding onto the page some slight madness about <laughs> what it might be like for, for Shakespeare to have to go through grant review in order to get permission to write Hamlet. And after I did that and amused myself sufficiently, I was able to think again and get back to work. Mm-hmm. And of course, I, I shared it with some friends. And um, five years later, eLife offered to publish it. <laughs> I think the part that was interesting to me after it was published was how many scientists responded to it. I mm-hmm. got many, 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 many emails Mm-hmm. from people and, and phone calls and that sort of thing about people who started out by saying how amused they were um, and moved on to tell their own stories. <laughs> I should say that I got a message from the directorship of um, NINDS telling me mm-hmm. to encourage Will to resubmit his grant, that they get far more <laughs> quality applications than they're able to fund and not to lose heart. I just I'm going to read a quick quote from that piece. So one of the criticisms from the uh, uh, reviewer says significance would be enhanced if the applicant cloned the gene for indecision. The play could then be repeated with an indecision knockout Hamlet, and the relevance of indecision to madness, etc., could be more directly assessed. Um, is literature something you usually often use as an outlet, or reading literature, writing literature? Uh, well, absolutely, uh, art in general, mm-hmm. music poetry, literature, mm-hmm. um, painting, mm-hmm. Uh, mostly looking at other people's paintings. Let me be clear about that. Um, and yeah, I think it, um, I've always enjoyed that aspect of the intellectual world as much as or along with enjoying the scientific side. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and so, so that I think I think in some ways it also has to do with translation mm-hmm. I like different languages and I like different modes of, of human expression and sometimes you can see things more clearly when you translate it into another language mm-hmm. and I think for me getting perspective on in this case writing that NIH grant was helped even though I was sort of playing and, and, and making fun and mm-hmm. I think that all those elements of the humanities, I've always used them to get perspective on whatever I was turning my attention to in the moment. Mm-hmm. And you've also taught a class trying to link humanities to the science, is that right? Yeah, we just finished teaching that actually. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually related to triaging Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, I ended up making friends, you know, just by being part of the university with um, Susie Phillips, who's a professor of English here at Northwestern University. Mm -hmm. She and I ended up serving on a lot of mentorship panels together, as it turns out. And Mm -hmm. um, I was always representing the sciences, and Susie would represent the English, and they would have somebody representing the social sciences in the middle. Mm -hmm. And because we were talking a lot about 
attitudes toward teaching and, and mentoring and training students, we discovered that we had a lot in common, even though she's a medievalist and a mm -hmm. Shakespeare scholar, and I'm a cellular neurophysiologist. Mm -hmm. And we, I, once I sent her triage in Shakespeare to amuse her, she mm -hmm. was amused. Um, and then the Chicago Humanities Festival ended up calling her up and saying that they wanted to have a science humanities dialogue at their humanities festival and could she come up with a scientist who might do that with her mm -hmm. and because of triage and shakespeare she said oh i know the person <laughs> so she and i ended up doing a 45 minute presentation discussion at the chicago humanities festival and i think it was 2013 in which we talked about our very very different disciplines they gave us the title the title was mm -hmm. a neuroscientist and a medievalist walk into a bar Mm -hmm. dot 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 <laughs> so they gave us the punchline and we mm -hmm. were responsible for coming up with the joke and so we ended up talking about the differences in our disciplines but then how we how we approach teaching and we read portions of triaging Shakespeare and, and we ended that discussion with the idea um, oh we should teach a course together we could teach a course on thought um, how thought is explored through literature because a lot of literature does explore human thought right. and how thought is approached by neuroscience. Mm -hmm. So a year ago, we proposed and were allowed to teach a course mm -hmm. in which we read Hamlet, mm -hmm. Sense and Sensibility, and The Sound and the Fury, mm -hmm. along with portions of David Linden's The Accidental Mind mm -hmm. and Antonio Damasio's um, The Feeling of What Happens. Uh, and we also did some readings um, from animal behavior. And we mm -hmm. had students from, I think, 13 different majors, I think. And we thought about thinking how the different disciplines approach. It mm -hmm. was great fun, mm -hmm. very interesting. Uh, Susie and I learned a lot, mm -hmm. and we hope the students did as well. Did you find they had more in common than you guys ex expected or less in common? Oh, we knew, we had figured out over the years before actually teaching this right. class that we had a tremendous amount in common in terms of what our ideals for education are, the way that we look at education and the way we, we find that our research is a reflection of that interest in education. Mm -hmm. um, that that The way I think of it is that research is reflexive. What do I want myself to know and how do mm -hmm. I get myself to know it? And teaching is transitive. You know, mm -hmm. um, what do I want them to know and how do I get them to understand it? Mm -hmm. And carrying out both of those endeavors means you have to think about thinking. You have to mm -hmm. think very carefully and logically about what are the steps to get from not knowing to knowing. Mm -hmm. And you have to have the language to um, explain those steps and to execute those steps systematically. Mm -hmm. And to me, once I phrase it like that, the actual topic of research yeah. doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. uh, that seems to me to be the structure latent in those processes. Yeah, it was very exciting to read Hamlet, reread <laughs> Hamlet. It's very interesting to read those as a scientist and think about how we teach elements of neuroscience, sensory integration, motor, and how the stories mm -hmm. follow many of the fundamental elements of neuroscience that we think about usually scientifically, but right. one can see the reflection of those things in many places. In the end, I guess we are really, I mean, we're all studying humanity, just exactly. slightly different perspectives. And exactly, takes... different levels of analysis, right, precisely. Right. And that's really what we talked about a lot in the class. And we talked about, obviously, madness, emotion and reason, contemplation, mm -hmm. neurodevelopmental disorders, 
um, um, perspective, and these these were all topics and questions that have been addressed by neuroscientists and and uh, and authors alike. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should um, kind of come back uh, mm-hmm. from that area to the work in your own lab now at Northwestern. Um, so as I mentioned, you've continued to work on the cerebellum, uh, going on not only to continue studying the uh, resurgent current and ionic other ionic properties of this re- brain region, but also uh, coming a little bit back to your background in synaptic physiology. So one of the um, more fascinating things that I've seen um, you publish is um, about kind of the cellular rules for learning in the cerebellum. Mm -hmm. So not everybody in our audience may realize, but uh, synaptic plasticity can in fact occur in the cerebellum and a lot of behavioral learning occurs in the cerebellum. Um, But the rules of induction are actually very different from the kind of classical protocols that people have uh, learned about based on studies of the hippocampus. So could you just maybe briefly tell us uh, what, you know, outline for us what the difference is between, you know, classic hippocampal synaptic plasticity um, and maybe what your lab has actually found to be true in the cerebellum. One fundamental thing that's different has to do with the point you just said. Maybe not everybody realizes that there's plasticity in the cerebellum. I, um, it, I think one of the things about plasticity in the cerebellum is how pervasive it actually is. It's less of an event, I think, when there's plasticity mm-hmm. in the cerebellum. Mm-hmm. I think that the um, there's evidence that many, many of the synapses in the cerebellum are extraordinarily plastic, and that may be related to the fact that the cerebellum is adapting all the time, mm-hmm. and that that is part of its role, and that is a sort of different, possibly, uh, functionally speaking, type of plasticity than plasticity that makes a memory that is going to be lasting forever. It's, here mm-hmm. we're talking about uh, a real-time adaptation to 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 situations, and um, and then other kinds of motor learning that may be more long-lasting, but mm-hmm. uh, maybe different in, in in character since they also can be um, modulated in different ways. Mm-hmm. And so, one common feature, mm-hmm. I think, is that. Um, Many electrical signals ultimately converge on on calcium signaling in neurons, right? Mm-hmm. And that calcium can be the ultimate effector molecule. And when one studies plasticity in the hippocampus, um, in, in in CA1 region, I should say, uh, one often talks about the the changes in calcium resulting from NMDA receptor activation that, that then lead to long term changes in LTP, as we we all know it and now think of as the canonical form of of, of cellular learning. Mm-hmm. And so when one thinks about the cerebellum, you can also think about changes in calcium may be the ultimate effector for producing plasticity. Mm -hmm. But when one thinks about a place like the cerebellar nuclei or Purkinje cells, and you think about the fact that those cells are spontaneously active, they generate action potentials all the time at very Mm -hmm. high rates, that means there's always going to be a calcium load on the cell. Mm -hmm. That also means that if an excitatory stimulus comes in, a glutamatergic um, afferent fires, there's a very high probability that you'll have the coincidence of the release of glutamate mm-hmm. and the presynaptic activity and the postsynaptic spike because the mm-hmm. cells are spiking all the time anyway. Mm-hmm. That doesn't become a very useful or unique uh, or even unusual signal right. for 
um, indicating that an event has happened that now needs to be encoded or change something about the way the cell fires. Because usually in the hippocampus, you know, the cell is quiet and then the appearance of a huge calcium surge indicates that, okay, plasticity can occur now. But if something's tonically active, I mean, there's already a background. So. Right. The, the rules are going to change. And in yeah. fact, that is the reason. At now now let me, let me mm. at least do justice to the cerebellum. Initially, mm. I didn't start studying the cerebellum because I was interested in the cerebellum. As mm. I said, I did it because I was interested in channel biophysics and went to Bruce's lab to work. Mm-hmm. Eventually, you know, you, you, you come to love what you care for, right? <laughs> <laughs> I started learning about the cerebellum, and, and I came to appreciate many, many elements of the cerebellum and get very interested in cerebellar physiology. And mm-hmm. one, to me, beautiful or striking thing was the fact that the cells had such high levels of spontaneous activity. Mm-hmm. And I had always learned about cells that were silent until stimulated. And mm-hmm. that was a very easy way of thinking about information. Mm-hmm. And this is probably the beginning of the talk that I'll give mm-hmm. next week. But yeah. um, um, it, the, the fact that these cells are firing all the time raises the question of what is information here? Mm-hmm. How, how do we think about information being transmitted? So as it turns out, you asked about the plasticity here. Mm-hmm. What, we, what we found in the cerebellar nuclei was that the signal for triggering synaptic plasticity or, or potentiation, long-term potentiation of excitatory synapses was not only the activation of glutamate receptors, NMDA receptors, mm-hmm. um, and probably the, the, the resulting calcium-dependent enzymatic pathways that are activated, mm-hmm. but also a silencing of the nuclear cells from Purkinje cell-mediated inhibition, mm-hmm. which dropped calcium levels in the cell. Mm-hmm. So suddenly one realizes, mm-hmm. or we realized, in retrospect this was obvious, but, but we did not really anticipate it on the inbound, that the important part is a change in calcium, mm-hmm. not so much the rise in calcium. We're used to thinking about a rise in calcium because we often think about resting calcium levels as being low. Purkinje cells can inhibit nuclear neurons and silence them and mm-hmm. turn off actually L-type calcium channels that are mm. activated by spiking. And that is sufficient to make the signal that will lead to the triggering of, of plasticity at synapses where NMDA receptors have been activated. So the inhibitory neurons, the Purkinje cells, can actually gate or regulate or dictate the plasticity at the excitatory synapses. Got you. So basically you have to silence instead of actually activate the postsynaptic cell to induce plasticity. Exactly. So it makes use of many of the puzzle pieces that we're familiar with, NMDA receptors, calcium rises, calcium mm-hmm. changes, and so forth. But it assembles them quite differently mm-hmm. um, uh, in a way that's compatible with the intrinsic firing, the other characteristics of firing in these cells. Right. It's funny because it actually circles back a little bit to what you thought you were going to study when you joined. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that was that's true. I, I I decided I would just save that that <laughs> question um, for when I started my own lab. And it's interesting because the extent to which I've been able to articulate articulate the question when I began in Bruce's lab was very low was very mm-hmm. little and it was the studies that I did in Bruce's lab that made me appreciate the high frequency firing patterns of the Purkinje cells coupling that awareness with what I learned about Purkinje cells being GABAergic or inhibitory mm-hmm. really provided the framework for me to articulate the questions much more effectively I think I hope mm-hmm. in <laughs> my own lab when I when I started it that's great 
Um, all right, so I think that uh, describing the plasticity sounds like it might be a good segue into kind of um, our close here, which is, uh, without giving it away, maybe I can give us a quick preview of your upcoming talk. Yeah, I think we have sort of set it up. The question mm -hmm. is then how do the cerebellar nuclear cells actually integrate the ongoing inhibitory input that they're receiving from many, many Purkinje cells at once. When I first, as I mentioned, when I first learned that Purkinje cells were inhibitory, I also learned that Purkinje cells could converge on their target cells in the cerebellar nuclei. I couldn't understand how neurons in the cerebellar nuclei could ever say anything at all if mm -hmm. they're faced with this extreme amount of inhibitory input. And so what I have actually been trying to explore, really starting from first principles, understanding the characteristics of the ion channels in the cerebellar nuclear cells, the inhibitory synaptic um, currents in the cerebellar nuclear cells, excitatory synaptic currents in the cerebellar nuclear cells, I'm trying to understand how, um, how these cells actually integrate the variety of synaptic inputs they get with their intrinsic properties to generate meaningful cerebellar output. So we've been studying that mostly in vitro, um, again, starting from the channel biophysics, working our way through the synaptic physiology, and we're finally beginning to approach some um, in vivo studies where we're really looking at motor behavior. Wow. So I'll be trying to tell you a little bit about those. All right. So we definitely look forward to that talk. Um, and finally, to end the show, um, I want to end with our typical rapid-fire questions. So I'm just going to ask you three brief questions. Just answer okay. whatever comes to your mind. All right, so the first question I'd like to ask, um, if you could go back in time and speak to yourself, Indira, as a graduate student, uh, what advice would you give yourself? Well, I guess that's sort of an easy question to answer <laughs> because I wrote it all out in the piece, How to right. Be a Graduate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, I think when anyone's writing an advice column, you're sort of writing to yourself, I suppose. Mm. I guess my favorite bit of advice in there is probably never be afraid to change your mind in the face of new evidence, mm -hmm. um, which I spelled out a bit there. Um, I think if I were speaking only to myself, though, I guess I would tell myself, <laughs> this will sound peculiar maybe, <laughs> not, not to become disappointed quickly with, with people's shortcomings, either mm -hmm. other people or myself, that, mm -hmm. that the, the people, people you meet as a scientist early on are going to be there for a really long time. People that you've met, whether they're your teachers or your peers or the people junior to you, mm -hmm. um, will be with you for a long time. And people people grow and change and everyone has something to offer. And it's kind of an exciting thing to find out how who people are scientifically, I mean, over a long period of time and you you learn different things that you can learn from different people mm -hmm. I don't think we've ever gotten that one before but I think that's wise advice for life not just science all right so I know we've talked about how the commonalities between science and uh, non-science fields but I want to ask if you did have to pick something else to study besides neurobiology cellular neurobiology what would you pick Probably music. Oh, um, okay. Um, I've played the piano since I was a child. Oh, wow. Classical piano. And assuming that in this fantasy I could have a little bit more natural talent than <laughs> I, uh -huh. uh, I think I would, I would love to study music to a, a deeper and broader level. Right. Beyond that, of course, math and languages are always right. the roads not traveled, even right. though I've incorporated them into my current life. Yeah, I always think music is really interesting as it relates to the brain and language, actually. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right, and my last question. If you could meet any scientists from any other time in history, who would you meet? 
I guess um, I I would like to meet I would like to meet Alan Hodgkin, perhaps mm. for obvious reasons. I mean, right. as the father of cellular nerve physiology, mm. I guess um, I would also like to meet. <laughs> I would also like to meet the great cognitive neuroscientist Jane Austen <laughs> and ask her how she figured out exactly how people think and managed to express it so perfectly. Um, I would also like to meet um, the botanist Emily Dickinson huh. and talk to her, probably, probably write to her. I think many of these people might be more suited to correspondence uh, right. uh, about how, she's, how she saw flowers and plants in the natural world and encapsulated um, those characteristics so so vividly in verse. And I guess back on the music thing, I would like with some trepidation to talk to the um, the great mathematician J.S. Bach hmm. and ask him <laughs> what he was really thinking about <laughs> all that stuff. Genius. <laughs> This has been a great conversation, um, and thanks again so much for speaking with uh, me today. Sure, my pleasure. And thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Ed Boyden, Professor of Biological Engineering and Brain and Cognitive Sciences at MIT. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. Neurotalk was founded by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and Forrest Coleman. This episode was produced by David Lipton, Louis Gian, Eddie Alberon, Andrew Gundren, Dan Nguyen, Jordan Sorokin, Sharon Liu, and myself, Ada Yi. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk and our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, as well as articles about everything neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. You can also follow Neurite West on Twitter using our handle at Stanford Neuro. This is Neurotalk, and I'm A-D-E.